This morning, then, is a standalone sermon on a holiday weekend that I hope will remind us of what we have in Christ and how all that he is for us shapes how we live and love in community. We'll be in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Go ahead and flip over there, verses 1 through 11. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. And where I often sort of give the sermon roadmap right here before I jump into the text, I'm just going to read those 11 verses in their totality first, and then we're together going to look at where we'll be going in the next 25 minutes. So here we go, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul here reminds the church of what they have in Christ and considering who Jesus is for them, he calls them to live a certain way. Paul reminds the church of all that they have in Christ, and then in light of all Christ is in them, he charges them to live a certain way. He, he exhorts them to allow Christ to live through them in certain ways. I think this sermon is a, is a bit basic, but it's the basics that we are so quick to neglect. Christian maturity never departs from the basics. Christian maturity always returns to the basics, specifically the gospel. The gospel is not just the ABCs of Christianity. The gospel is the A through Z of Christianity. It's easy to forget that a childlike faith is all Jesus requires of us. It's easy to allow our hearts to grow cold to the beauty of the gospel, God for us and in us. To think of ourselves more as professional Christians than practicing Christians. It's tragically easy to miss Christ as we live out our Christian lives. Before Paul commands the Philippians to live a certain way, he reminds them what they have in Christ. Those if statements in the first verse, they're somewhat rhetorical. If there's encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection, sympathy, your mercy, etc. Yes, those things exist. They can almost be read because you have encouragement in Christ, because you have love in Christ, because you have mercy in Christ. But I think he uses if for a reason. I think it has rhetorical force because it forces the Philippians to assess whether these things they have are actually present among them. 
it forces the Philippians to ask whether the things that are theirs are functionally present in their lives. And that is insightful for us. Are we assuming these things? Or are these things being activated in our life and community? In other words, does the love of Christ, the encouragement of Christ, the mercy and sympathy of Christ, the mind of Christ, do, do those things take on any material significance in our lives? If there is encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the spirit, affection and sympathy or mercy, then complete my job by having the same mind, same love, and being of one accord. In just a moment, we'll consider these commands Paul has. There's three of them. But first, I want to quickly see six things that we have in Christ. Six things that we see just in this first verse, first couple of verses, really, that are our birthright in our rebirth in Christ. And I want us to ask, do these things take material significance in our lives? Are these things that we have, that we've been given at great cost, are they present in our lives? So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If there is any first encouragement in Christ, the first thing we have in Christ is encouragement. Where do you turn when you're discouraged? Where do you go when you're tired? Where do you go when you're down and lonely? Now, the Sunday school answer is pretty easy, and it is the right one, Jesus. But I must ask, does that Sunday school answer reflect the reality of your day-to-day -day life? Because if I am honest, when I'm taking inventory of my own spiritual walk, oftentimes that, that confession doesn't match the reality. Oftentimes, my encouragement can sort of come from the affirmation of others. I can walk through life encouraged when not too many people are mad at me. I can be encouraged when I've not let anyone down, I've not disappointed anyone. Uh, I can also find my encouragement in accomplishments. I did this, or I'm in the process of doing this, and I, I find my encouragement in the fact that I'm able to accomplish this and do this and be this and become this. Where do you find your encouragement? Where do you find that strength to keep going when things are tough? It, it, it's great when others are encouraging to us. And I actually think that encouragement is one of the most needed ministries in our church today. Not just resurrection, but, but the church as a whole. I think we have all kinds of folks who have uh, happily and excitedly taken up the mantle of, of prophetic truth teller. But I don't know if we have as many folks who have excitedly taken up the mantle of chief encourager in the lives of brothers and sisters. We all need people in our lives to encourage us. But there's a sense in which there's a deeper encouragement that we have in the fellowship of Christ. There's a deeper encouragement that we know only in his company. There's a deeper encouragement that comes from a life-giving relationship with Jesus Christ. We find our encouragement to keep going in the person of Jesus Christ. First, we have encouragement. Second, the apostle says, if there is any comfort from love, if there is any comfort from love, 
Friend, do you know the love of Christ which surpasses understanding? Do you know the love of Christ which Paul says that nothing can take away from us? Neither height, nor depth, nor breadth, nor, nor ruler, nor principality, nor anything in this life or in the life to come. Nothing can take that love from us. Do you know that love that is always there? Do you know that love which is there when all the other loves in your life just are simply not? Have you felt his comfort in your darkest night? Christ himself comforts us because Christ loves us. In Christ, you have encouragement. In Christ, you have comfort from his love. And third, in Christ, you have participation in the Spirit. Participation in the Spirit. So the life of Christ dwells in us because he has sent the helper, the Holy Spirit, to give us a new heart, to replace our heart of stone with a heart of flesh, and to write the law of God on our hearts. Here's the, simply put, we have a vital connection to Christ. Vital just means life-giving. We have a vital connection to Christ, a connection that gives us real spiritual life. The Christian life is not just exterior conformity to a code of ethics. Though the Christian life involves obedience to God's will, the Christian life involves obedience to God's law, and trying to live that way is not legalism, it's obedience. It's learning to live the way God calls us to live. But the Christian life is not simply that. It's something deeper. It's something more profound. It is our hearts being connected to the heart of God through the sacrifice of Jesus the Christ who has sent the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. The prophets foretold that there would be a day where the law of God would not be written on stone, but the law of God would be written on hearts. There would be a day where people didn't just try to conform to what was written out there, but an internal change would happen in the people of God. And that internal change that happens inside the people of God motivates and causes them to live a new way. That change is a vital connection to the vine. Well, Jesus teaches this to his disciples. I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me and you can do all things, but without me, you can do nothing. We have a life-giving connection to God in Jesus Christ. Are you aware of the life of God that flows through you, giving you real spiritual life? We have in Christ encouragement to keep going. We have in Christ comfort and love to know that he cares, he loves us, and he draws near to us in our suffering. We have in Christ, third, participation in the spirit. We have active life of God in us. Fourth, we have affection and sympathy. This could also, I think, better be translated mercy. Do you know the affection and mercy of Christ? Do you know that he does not merely tolerate you. This is important. God does not love you with a dry, distant, detached sort of love. No, he loves you and he likes you. The Old Testament is full of really beautiful prophecy about how God feels about his covenant people. The prophet Zephaniah says he sings over his beloved. Paul teaches that the Lord delights in his elect. The way you think God feels about you directly affects the way you feel about him. The way you think God feels about you 
right now affects the way you relate to him right now. We can think about this with a really simple illustration. Uh, how do you feel returning a phone call when the person you're returning that call to is really upset with you? When the person you're about to call is really angry with you, you've forgotten to do something, you have offended them in some way, and you're gonna make this call to them, but you know on the other side of that phone, they are not going to be happy to hear from you. Uh, if you're like me, you put off that call until one day it becomes a big whole problem. Uh, the anxiety is just all too much to do it. And you're just like, oh, I can't, I can't have this conversation because it's going to be so awkward because they don't like me. I, I, I don't want to have this. But if you, it's so much easier, though, to, to pick up the phone and call somebody. If you know that person is wanting to hear from you, they're excited to hear from you, you have good news for them, they have good news for you, and that's going to affect the approach you take in that relationship with the other person. If you know their default posture towards you is not skepticism, it's not anxiety, it's not stay an arm's length away, it's not suspicion, it's not I don't know about you, but their posture towards you is I cannot wait to hear from you, I delight in you, I love you, I like you, I want to talk to you, then the way you approach that person is going to be shaped by what you believe their posture is towards you. And so many of us Christians, we believe God's posture towards us is sort of like perpetual disappointment. Because we look back at our lives and we, we're perpetually disappointed. Like we see, oh, I did not do this and I could have done this. Or I should have done this and I didn't. Oh, I haven't read my Bible in 17 days. Like I haven't prayed. I can't say the last time I prayed. And so we're putting this list of things together in our head that we believe would make God disappointed in us. And so what happens, because we believe God's disappointed in us, we begin to just distance ourselves from our walk with God. We need not do that if we know the affection of Christ for us. We need not do that if we trust the love of the Father for us. We need not do that if we know we have the affection and mercy of Christ who has drawn near to us in his grace and in his love. And through the sacrifice of Jesus the Christ, God the Father looks at us and calls us son, calls us daughter. He sings over us. He delights in us. The way you think God feels about you directly affects the way you feel about him. Do you know the affection and mercy of Christ? The last two things we have in Christ come from the next few verses. So look with me at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The last two things we have in Christ from this passage, the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. This mind, he says, which is yours in Christ Jesus. He tells the church, you share the mind of Christ and together you should set your minds on Christ. Like this is all about Christ. Even in the first chapter of Philippians, which we did not read, Paul is, is expressing this idea that, that his ministry, that all things are about Christ. Some are preaching Christ from selfish ambition and for selfish gain. No matter, Paul says, Christ is preaching in this I rejoice. Paul strains the limits of language to say to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
In verse 27, Paul says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. This is all about Christ. This is the perspective that we share. This is the mind that we share. This is the mind that is ours in Christ. We have together the mind of Christ, which unifies us in a shared perspective. Not only do we have the mind of Christ, but we have an example in Christ, the sixth and final thing from this passage that we have in Christ. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So this passage is beloved by theologians. It is fertile ground for Trinitarian theology. Jesus is in the form of God. He is himself divine. But he does not use that divinity to serve himself. He uses that divinity to serve others. But while this is, is just incredible grounds for theological inquiry, this is also very simple. And I don't think we should miss the simplicity of it. Paul is saying you have the mind of Christ, and not only do you have this mind of Christ, but you have this ultimate example in Christ of how you must live. This is the supreme example of humility. Now, in light of all these things, the encouragement that you have in Christ, the comfort and love that you have in Christ, the participation in the spirit that is yours in Christ, the affection and mercy of Christ that you know, the mind of Christ that you share, and the example of Christ that you've all seen and heard of Jesus, who is God himself, who comes to earth and dies a sinner's death. Oh, with that mind and example, here's what you must do. Here are the three commands Paul has for the church. First, walk in unity. Walk in unity. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by what? Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Here is the command. Be of the same mind with the same love and walk in one accord. Walk together. Settle differences. Forgive offenses. Don't quibble over preferences. Seek the good of the whole church. Because remember, you share the mind of Christ. So together set your minds on him. He is the grounds of our unity. That our unity is not just a call to like not think. <laughs> our unity is not just a call to just get along superficially. Like our unity is to press in together to all we have in Christ. You share the mind of Christ, so set your minds on him. He is the grounds of our unity. He himself brings us together. Brothers and sisters, this is my charge to us as we move into a new semester of ministry. Let us pursue real unity because it is ours in Christ. Let our love for one another not stagnate. Let our love for one another not shrink, but let it grow as we move forward with the same mind and the same affections. The command from Paul is simple. In light of all that you have in Christ, 
walk in unity with one accord. But you will never walk in unity as long as you're focused on yourself. The biggest obstacle to unity in the church is pride in our hearts. The single biggest obstacle to unity in the church is pride in our hearts. The next command comes in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Paul's second command. Do nothing for yourself, but count others as more significant. This uh, may be the most countercultural thing that we say this morning. The world teaches us that the way to joy is to live for ourselves. The world teaches us that the way to joy is to live for ourselves. The Bible teaches us time and time again that the way to joy is by living for God and in obedience to him, living for others. Our friends, our enemies alike. This is upside down teaching. Jesus teaches it time and time again. When you go to a banquet, do you take the best seat? No, when you go to a banquet, you take the worst seat. When you go to a place, don't expect to be served, but to serve. When you go to a place, don't expect everything, everyone to sort of think like you think, live like you live, do what you do, conform to what you think should happen. There is not one inch of our lives that are exempt from this command. Do nothing for selfish ambition or conceit, but in everything you do, yes, consider your interests, but also consider the interests of others as just as important as your own. This changes the way Christians approach relationships. This changes the way Christians approach education. This changes the way Christians approach their careers. This changes the way Christians approach their finances. If we will simply take God at his word, our lives, as Paul will say on down in this chapter, will shine like lights among the nations. If we would take this principle, which is oh so easy to preach and oh so hard to live, and sincerely apply it to every facet of our life, our lives would provide a stark contrast to those around us. Now, Paul is specifically applying this principle to life in the church. If you will walk in unity, this is how you're going to have to do it. Uh, in our day, it's, it's popular to talk about unity. But it's, it's simply never popular to talk about repentance and selflessness. But you don't get one without the other. If you will walk in unity, this is how you're going to have to do it. Because a bunch of people who are only looking out for themselves have no hope of seeing a bigger picture. They have no hope of walking in unity. They have no hope of being a shining picture of the gospel. As Paul applies this to the Philippians church, I'll apply this as a couple of examples in the life of our church right now, as I mentioned in the beginning. I don't share this to be manipulative. I share this to be clear. 
One way you can count others more significant than yourself is by serving. Teaching, greeting, singing, cleaning, whatever your service may be, it is fundamentally for the good of the whole. And you do it because you, you count others more significant than yourselves. That you're not just concerned with sort of your experience of the church, but you are concerned with other people's experience of the church. And because you're concerned with other people's experience of the church, that motivates you to a life of loving service. Now, just as important as serving is engaging in discipleship in some way. This is another way you can count others as more significant than yourselves. Many of us have time for relationships as long as they are really aimed our direction. Like we have time for relationships as long as the person is investing in and pouring into us. But if we all take that perspective, then it's just like a, a constant standoff, a bunch of people who are looking at someone else waiting for that person to pour into them. Instead of two people looking at each other with the perspective of, I'm going to pour into you. Do you see how that posture changes everything? If you come to group waiting to hate it, waiting to say, I'm not going to engage these people. I'm not going to be vulnerable with these people. I'm just not going to show up. I'm not going to do it. And if the other person comes with that same attitude, then you have, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's going to be miserable for everybody. You could cut the tension with a knife because everyone is there to have their needs met. And they come in with that perspective. But if you come in and say, I don't know how this is going to go, but I am here because I count this person's connection as, as more important or just as important as my own. And if that person comes in with that same perspective, then instead of having two people kind of at a standoff, you have two people who are looking to serve one another. And it might still be awkward. And in some cases, it might still not work. But it has a chance to work. It has a chance to be a relationship where both people are extending the love of Christ to one another and lives are being touched. And what you find is that as you're pouring yourself out, Paul will say on down in the chapter, I should have just preached the whole thing and just, you know, been here at one o'clock. But he says, I'm pouring myself out for you. And in pouring himself out for you, he's saying, you are completing my joy. The Christian life is a life of mutual service where our needs are met when we give to one another. One of the biggest struggles I have at this stage of our church's life, to be completely blunt, is figuring out how to cultivate ever-growing circles of friends. Because what happens is a lot of people, they, 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 they get their friends, their couple friends, and they hold on to those friends, and they guard that circle really tightly, and it's good and necessary to have these friendships. But the bigger picture is all these people who are coming in who have no friends who are looking for relationships and everywhere they look, they find a closed circle, a closed circle, a closed circle, a closed circle, a closed circle. Who will be leaders who lead by serving and who serve by opening their circles to an ever-growing number of friends? C.S. Lewis talks about friendship being the, the least jealous of loves. At the end of the friendship sermon several weeks back, we, we, we use an example of... Uh, that some, each friend brings out something unique about this friend and, and we are sort of growing in fellowship and in community as this circle of friendship grows. It's easy to get more and more people in this room on Sundays. Like I just got to keep preaching better. Our band keeps playing better. We get better ministries. Everything is rolling. We're, we're improving stuff. And we are, we're going to work on improving. I want to be a better preacher in two years than I am today. I'm sure the, the musicians the man want to be better musicians to, in two years than they are today. The teachers upstairs want to be better teachers in two years than they are today. We want our facility to be better and better and better. 
Cass and Jordan, they just did incredible work up in the nursery. It looks wonderful. Like, poke your head in there and see it, maybe after the kids are gone, I suppose. But the new check-in station, like, we want things to be improving. But here's the thing. Nothing matters. Getting more people in this room is, is almost harmful if we're not integrating those people into relationships. If those people aren't finding life-giving relationships, then why do we even want them in the room? So we can say our church is growing, our church is getting big like this church or like that church. This may be the way of American Christianity, but it is not the way of Christ. Brother, sister, we need leaders who lead by serving, who lead by saying, I'll make friends with people who need friends because I don't just engage community for myself, but I do this for other people. And I find that as I'm doing this for other people, I am being filled up. My joy is being complete, as Paul might say. I say this graciously, but clearly, it's a paradigm shift we must embrace. We are able to live for others if and only if, here's the third command, we keep our eyes on Christ. Third and finally, look to Christ. I talked about that passage being just beautiful passage for doctrine. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Here is the message of Paul, brothers and sisters in the church, as you seek to live in unity, as you seek to walk in humility, you will not do that if your mind is not set on Christ. It is so subtle that our minds drift from the person and work of Jesus Christ. Many of us here this morning are just disinterested in the gospel. We're interested in the news, we're interested in politics, we're interested in sports, we're interested in movies, we're interested in these things, that thing, we're interested in ministries, we're interested in all these things, but we have lost our interest in Christ. And here is the command, look to Jesus, who is God himself, equal with God the Father in power and authority, but did not use that to avoid suffering. He used that to embrace your suffering. He chose to walk in his humanity. He chose to serve rather than be served. He chose to suffer unto death and not just any death. Worship team, you guys can come on up. He chose to suffer a shameful death. The death of a criminal. The death of a liar. The death of a thief. And the death of a blasphemer but being faithful to complete the plan of God from ages past, Jesus rose from the dead and the Father bestowed on him the name that is above every name. At his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Look to Christ and live. Brother, sister, set your mind on Christ. A Christian follows Christ. If the church does nothing else, we learn to do this together. I said this sermon was basic, and hopefully that has been the case. After all, you didn't come here to hear a statement like this, a Christian follows Christ. In the church, we do this, if nothing else. So here's the charge. 
Let's walk together. Let's count others as more significant than ourselves. And let's look to Jesus and live. The interesting thing about that passage being so good for thinking about theology, and it is, and it's intended for that. Paul is just giving us an example of how we should live here. That he is calling on Christ's divinity and his humanity and his suffering and his death and his glorification and he's helping us see that in Christ, this is the ultimate example. I mean, if you can explain to me the divinity and humanity of Jesus, but you don't live humbly, then you don't understand the Bible. As Jesus would say to the Pharisees, you, you search them because you think they have life, but you neglect me. <laughs> if we can come to the Bible and we can answer all the questions, what does this passage tell us about God? Well, it tells us that God is fully God and that Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. And, and that's why I have this good doctrine of the Trinity and this good doctrine is going to save me. But if you, if you can say all that, but then you leave the place and you don't love others, you don't humbly serve, you don't count others as more significant than yourselves, then you are missing the entire reason that Paul wrote this. Paul's charge for us this morning is simple. Walk together by humbling yourselves and looking to Christ. Walk together in unity of one mind, one love, one accord. Humbly, not looking to be served by all these programs that are going to help you get everything you need, but looking to serve. If I do this, this will help these people. And if, if they come, I'm going to help do this, and it's going to help these people. And then we become a place where the culture is just people sacrificing for each other. Man, what a powerful place to be. Because all of us, old, young, rich, poor, from this background and that background, with these thoughts and these thoughts, with these experiences and these experiences, we are all together seeking Christ, who is our example and who lives his life through us. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning humbly, aware that we have so many gifts in you that are so often not materially present in our lives. The encouragement that we have, the comfort and love that we have, the affection that we have, the mercy that we have, the life-giving connection to God that we have, all these things that you've given us, so often we just put them in the corner and, and play with our own little toys. But this morning, Lord, we go to that corner and we knock the dust off these things. We claim them as ours because you have given them to us at a great cost to yourself. And with these things, we move forward in unity, in humility, and in worship and devotion to you. Spirit, apply this sermon 10,000 ways in all our hearts, and may it yield fruit in this life and the life to come. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.